0: I was working six days a week and mostly 12 to 14 hour days. And at the time when you're in it, you don't realize that it's not healthy. I don't think I knew how unhealthy I was.
1: I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch.
2: This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team
1: to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback.
2: We started the skim from a couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch?
1: We are so excited. Today, we welcome Missy Robbins to Skim from the Couch. Missy is the award-winning chef and owner of Lilia and Missy Restaurants in Brooklyn and the co-founder of Grove House Hospitality, the lucky few who can score a reservation at either spot or if you're like me, wait for hours, but it's totally worth it because we have all tasted Missy's warm and creative approach to Italian cuisine, and reviewers have called her cooking a, quote, direct route to happiness. That is the best quote that you can have said about you. We completely agree. She came up through the ranks at some of the best restaurants in the country, and over her culinary career, she has received numerous accolades, including the James Beard Award for Best Chef, New York City. Both Lilia and Missy have been awarded three stars from the New York Times. But... We all know the road to success isn't always easy, and Missy had to take a few steps back to gain perspective before going ahead with her own restaurants. She's also an author and has launched a line of jumpsuits. I love it. We are so excited to get into all of this. Missy, welcome to the couch. Thank you. Okay, first, just skim your resume for us.
0: Oh my god, it's I'm really old so it's very well, it's long. A it's going to be yeah. short. I started cooking in 1993, my last semester of college at a restaurant called 1789. Moved to New York to go to cooking school very briefly at what was then called Peter Kump's, a tiny little school. And then I worked for two people mostly in New York. I kind of flip flopped between them uh, Ann Rosenzweig at both the Lobster Club in Arcadia, and then a gentleman named Wayne Nish at March. And then I took off and I moved to Italy for six months where I got fully immersed into the world of regional cooking there and then came back, worked at the Soho Grand Hotel, which is a very little known fact about me, for three and a half years, so a big chunk of time. And then moved to Chicago and I was the executive chef at Spiaggia for five years, which was probably the most formative and important five years of my learning under Tony Monsuano. And then I moved back to New York because I really missed home and took over Avoce and then opened the second Avoce. And then in 2013, took a little self-induced hiatus and then opened Lilia in 2016 and opened Missy in 2018 and then
2: met us in 2019 and that's really exactly and that's part it of that that's it story. that's my resume
0: that was the shortest i've ever done in my resume you, you did in, a my great entire, job. in my
2: entire life what is not on your linkedin or bio that we um I should probably
0: know about you? don't even have a linkedin <laughs> for well a that's while. why i said or bio um what is not on my bio um wow that's a tough one in terms of career
2: no whatever you'd I'd like to share
0: Uh, I'm like an open book. Everything's on my bio.
2: Hi, welcome back. What is your day? Like, what time do you wake up?
0: What time do you go to sleep? How does your day work? My day is really different these days than it used to be. My day is no longer standing in a kitchen all day from 10 a.m. to 11 p.m., which is what it was like for many, many years. Lily is about to turn four years old in January. And my day has definitely even evolved in the last four years. So I kind of wake up really early these days between six and seven. I do a lot of checking the email in bed and responding to things really quickly and reading reviews of the restaurant, which is a very bad thing to do when you wake up do in the morning. Do you do that a lot? I do it every morning, and I really try and stop because some days it's like, oh, great, cool, we're great, and then some days it's like, oh, we really— Really missed it last Where night. Where do you
1: re- read reviews?
0: Direct email comes from Resi, so I'm not going on every thing. Yeah. I'm going on an email that comes directly to me, um, which I obviously don't have to look at. But um, and then I get up. I've recently become a home uh, coffee maker. Uh, and I make myself a cappuccino every morning, which I'm really trying to perfect. That's very impressive.
2: I it's, know you're a chef, but like that's very No, impressive. it is.
0: It, by the way, I don't know how to do it. So I've like <laughs> studied it. I'm like reading <laughs> coffee books and watching videos on how to... <laughs> Texture milk properly. You have the
1: big machine.
0: I have have a really lovely espresso machine, and um, I'm learning how to pull the perfect shot. And I go to Lily to my own cafe to like ask (laughs) my baristas tips. (laughs) I have to say it's become like a really nice part of my day. There's something very relaxing about waking up and not leaving the house, Um, and then. I usually do work at home for a little bit. I try and work out and then I go check on the restaurants. And then my day is filled with meetings, checking in with the chefs, working services for part of services. My day is never the same, that's for sure. I'm also writing a book right now that comes out in 2021 and that's due very soon. So my day is really never the same. It's really about looking at the day and figuring out how to maximize it and figuring out how to get the most out of it um, and not really kind of wasting hours. How did you know you wanted to be a chef? I didn't. So when I was younger, I grew up in Connecticut, and my parents were very into food and entertaining and dining out and travel. And I, in turn, became very fascinated by those things and was very fortunate in my life. I went to Israel when I was five. We would go to California. Did you have siblings? Yes. I have an older brother. He's uh, three and a half years older than I am.
1: So your parents would travel with you. I'm yes. imagining who your parents were to travel with two little kids to, um, to Israel.
0: We went for a month. My dad is a physician and he did a teaching fellowship there. For a month, I remember a lot of things about it, but I mostly remember food things. So I remember going to the store with my mom, and the milk was sold in bags instead of cartons. And I remember being on a kibbutz and drinking unpasteurized milk for the first time and, like, screaming and running out of the dining hall. I remember, like, really weird things, but better memories. I, we went to uh, London when I was 12 uh, and ate at a three-star Michelin restaurant called Le Gavroche. That is still so ingrained in my head, and I still remember almost every single thing I ate there. We came to New York a lot. I grew up about an hour and a half away, and special occasions, my parents kind of would say, like, oh, where do you want to go? And they had taken us to these restaurants, and I was fascinated by it. So I'd be like, oh, I'd like to go to the Four Seasons, please.
2: Do you think that your parents were trying to foster creativity they saw in you? No, I
0: think they just loved dining out, and it was part of their life, and They just included us. I don't know if they were trying to foster creativity. They were definitely trying to foster some kind of elegance. Like my mother made us dress up to get on the airplane and made us dress up to go to a Broadway show. So now today, like when I go in jeans to a show, I'm like, oh my God, my mom's gonna get mad. As time went on. And so you have to remember, I went to college in the 90s cooking wasn't this profession that it is today. It was respected, but there were very few quote-unquote celebrity chefs. It wasn't this thing. There was no food network. And I was sort of fascinated by the whole feeling of being in a restaurant. Like I loved the service. I liked the plates. I liked the vibe. I liked the environment. And it wasn't just about the food, but I did like cooking, and I did cook a lot at home when I was younger because I didn't love my mom's cooking. But I never thought I'd become a chef. I thought I would go do
2: something. Like, What did it, you think you would do? Like,
0: I was on a psychology track and an art track. So I was a psychology minor. college. I was an art history major. I was really into photography. There was a point that I thought maybe I wanted to do that. I I did a lot of internships in the art world, museums, galleries. And then I had this defining meal in 1992, the end of 1992 at Charlie Trotter's, um, which was a very famous restaurant in Chicago. And we were there for Thanksgiving. My mom's from Chicago. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And a friend of mine from elementary school, Megan Conway, um, had gone to Northwestern and was then cooking at Charlie Trotters. And I was like, oh, well, if Megan can do it, I can do it too. So I called Megan after I left and I said, hey, I want to work at Charlie Trotters. How do I do that? And she said, you can write him, but he's not going to respond. Like, I highly doubt. So I wrote a cover letter, as we did in those days. And I sent it to him and he called me three weeks later. I was sitting in my apartment.
1: What did you write? Yeah, what did you say? I just
0: talked about my passion for food and dining and that I would do it for free and that I just wanted to learn and that I was really excited about. Do you think
2: it was lucky timing or do you think your cover letter was that good?
0: I think it was a combo. I was sitting in my room. I remember my roommate was like, hey, some dude named Charlie's on the phone for you. And I was like, what? And I remember going in my room and the guy just started grilling me. And he said, well, why don't you come out here for two days and spend some time in our kitchen, which I did. So I took a week off of school. My grandmother at the time still lived in Chicago. So I went and stayed at her apartment. And I went and worked in his kitchen. It was the two most terrifying days of my career. What did you do? Picked herbs, did minor tasks, but mostly picking a lot of herbs. Um, and then I went home and he said, well, why don't we keep in touch? And in the meantime, I think you should get some experience while you're finishing school. And I was like, okay. like It was so foreign. This was like a foreign world to me. So there was a restaurant above my college bar. I, my college bar was called The Tombs, very famous Georgetown bar. There was this restaurant called 17 and 9 owned by The Tombs. And I used to see the chefs down there and I went and knocked on the door one day and said, hey, I'd really like to learn how to cook. Would would you be willing to let me in your kitchen? And they're like, yeah, sure. We'll pay you too. And you can show up on Friday and Saturday at four o'clock every weekend.
1: Hello, your friends from Skim HQ here. It's the most wonderful time of the year and also the busiest. We asked and skimmers told us they spend an average of 20 hours every winter prepping for the holidays. So. We found a way to save you all some time. Introducing Celebrate Smarter Shop. We've skimmed the holidays and curated all the best products for you to give, host, up your travel game, and just de-stress. Smarter. Shop online today at shop.theskim.com. That's shop.theskim.com. Start shopping.
2: So I want to take a step back. I sure. I've never worked in a restaurant. And I in my smart head, idea. In my head, I think I'm gonna be a chef one day. That won't happen. But like in my head I like to pretend. I, but I was the world's worst waitress. I
1: can say that really? with confidence. Yes. I was horrible. But you're so friendly. Thank you. Mm, it's I know. a facade. People really, people really liked me until— Oh, you just weren't good at I was the actual— f- I was
2: a fantastic hostess. Okay. But okay. I'm asking because my very novice understanding of this is that when you want to work in a kitchen, you take the you know bottom-of-the-barrel job. You're going to be chopping, picking the herbs, yeah. like whatever. You're going to be doing yeah. the dishwashing. You'll be doing everything. And most of the head chefs are not giving you the time of day. What I want to understand is what do you think was about you? You were so young. You were figuring out your life that these really well-known chefs and restaurants were like, yeah, we'll give you a chance. Come on in. I was determined.
0: I'm polite. I think I'm semi-articulate. And I think I just had this determination. And people always need help. That's the bottom line. And even though today people need help much more than when when I was starting out i think people saw something and and i worked hard so when i started in the kitchen i wasn't amazing at it i was determined to be amazing at it and i had zero skill set but i really wanted not to fail and so i worked really hard and i ended up getting that job and i ended up working until the end of college which was just a few months i graduated and i came back to that job after the summer I, i would show up at 10 in the morning when my shift started at four, just so I could stand next to the chefs and watch what they were doing. And I read a lot and I bought cookbooks and I just fully immersed myself. The original question was, how did you know you wanted to be a chef? And I didn't. But once I got into the kitchen, that very first Friday night, I felt this energy and didn't look at my clock and I loved working with my hands and I loved the camaraderie of a kitchen. And even though it wasn't always easy, then after those couple of months was like, okay, I'm gonna give this a year. I was like, I'm gonna see what happens in a year. And then I just I delved into it and I was just really into it. I think it's just determination and wanting it.
2: As a very successful restaurant owner today, if the 21-year-old you knocked on the door and was like, I'd like to learn how to be in your kitchen. Would you answer and say, come on in? Yes. We get young people
0: all the time that don't have a lot of experience. And honestly, those are the people I want in the kitchen because they want it so badly and they want to learn. And so often those are the best people. They want to learn. So they're They come in with just a different attitude than someone who's been on the line for 10
2: years and thinks that they know everything and they don't want to learn new technique. When you skimmed your resume for us, you told us how you left D.C., came to New York, and ultimately ended up in Chicago. At this point, real success starts happening for you. You start to become a name. You start to get accolades. What was that early success like? I I never
0: thought about it as early success. I thought about it as this coming into my own and finding my place more than I thought about it as like, I'm successful. I still don't think about success that way. I think you always can be growing. When I came home from Italy and I took the job at the Soho Grand Hotel, it was a real diversion from the rest of my career. I was always working for these well-known chefs. I was working in these very intimate restaurants. And I took the job at the Soho Grand because I wanted to see if I was missing out on cooking in a hip place. It was very different from anything I ever did. And I, in turn, sort of took myself out of the fine dining world. And when I realized that the hotel world wasn't really what I wanted to be doing, and I really wanted to be back in fine dining, it was a scary time for me because I wasn't going to get the kind of job in New York that I was able to get in Chicago. And what had happened was a headhunter who I had sent my resume to four years earlier, um, remembered that I said I would move to Chicago. And he called me and said, do you remember talking to me and you know a restaurant called Spiagia? they're looking for a chef de cuisine. And I was like, yeah, what is, my- What I, is a chef de cuisine? Chef de cuisine is sort of the number two under the executive chef or the owner or- um, So if
2: I was the head chef, Danielle could be my chef de cuisine? Correct.
0: No. <laughs> correct. False. Um, there are the people like who run the day-to-day who do the execution of sort of the lead person's vision. So I have chef de cuisines and executive sous chefs and, so you know, it's all semantics. What's the
2: difference between a sous chef
0: and a chef a sous, so it depends on the kitchen structure okay. like every every kitchen's different but we have sous chefs under the chef de cuisines who execute you know on that level also they're like middle management for lack of a better okay. word got it but anyway i got the chef de cuisine job which and again it's semantics because it very quickly became an executive chef job it was this opportunity to really work with this gentleman who's so established, Tony, and has this place that's a four-star restaurant in this big city, and with a cuisine that, honestly, I had cooked in Italy, but I hadn't really cooked in the States. And so there was a tremendous learning curve. For me, I was always sort of thinking, I have to prove myself. Someone just put me in charge of this massive kitchen with 50 employees and in a cuisine that I'm not an expert in. And so my main goal while I was there was to become an expert in the cuisine. And I don't call myself an expert, but.
1: You're at Spiagia. Yeah. And it's the pinnacle at the time of fine dining in Chicago, big city. How'd you deal with the pressure?
0: I had really amazing support from Tony. So nothing went on the menu without me passing it through Tony. And he was such an incredible mentor and is an incredible mentor and one of my closest friends now still. And I've been gone since 2008. I think that support system and... Having him as a mentor as I grew and as my name got out there a little bit, you know, the best advice he ever got me was never to believe my own press. And I honestly take that with me every day. And I think it's really important advice. I think there was a pressure, but that pressure wasn't solely on me. And I think the pressure that I had at Avoce when I took over was way, way, way more intense than anything I ever felt at Spiaggia. Spiaggia was protected, for so lack let's, of a better word.
1: Let's talk about Avoce and the atmosphere there that I think is part of what people perceive as a culture in working in kitchens. They're late hours, long hours, not a real routine. What kind of toll did that take on you? It was an
0: intense job. I took over the original Avoce from from Andrew Carmelini. And obviously, he had such an immense reputation in the city and was at the height of his career. And
2: that was a really big- Just for our listeners, so this is in New York. Yeah, uh, Avoce is a very famous restaurant in New York. And then you took it over and opened a second. I did. They're both now closed.
0: Also, for reference, boys, Um, don't come to go see it. (laughs) Don't go to a voce because it doesn't exist. I opened a second one in Columbus Circle, right below Per Se. It was a big deal for me, and a and a big part of my career. And I had never done it on my own before. I had always had that protection of a chef partner or an executive chef above me. And this was really a big break for me. And it wasn't just a break to do one restaurant. It was a break to do two restaurants. It was bigger than anything I had ever done, and you know, physically bigger. The kitchen was giant. It required an amazing amount of people on the line at night. We did 400 people on Saturday nights. I love pressure. I thrive under that. And I, again, just want to succeed. So I delve into it, but I was working probably mostly six days a week and mostly 12 to 14 hour days. And that was just the norm. And At the time when you're in it, you don't realize that it's not healthy. I have since leaving there in 2013, I've lost 40 pounds. I'm much healthier, I've maintained that 40 pounds off. And I don't think I knew how unhealthy I was. Looking awful is a result of a lot of things. It's not just like you eat too much or you don't exercise or you're working too much. It's a combo of all those things. I left a for a variety of reasons. I, it was the right time in my career to take a break. It was 20 years of solid work of that nature, of working those kind of hours, and I did it for 20 years and never really took a significant break. I left a because I didn't think it was ultimately the right direction for my career, and I knew I needed something else, and I, within a week of leaving, realized how burnt out I had been. But I had never used that word In describing why I was going, I took that time off to really regenerate myself and get healthy mentally, physically, and be ready to do something else in a much healthier way.
2: I think it's one thing to recognize burnout. And then, you know, the obvious thing is like, okay, eat better, sleep more, maybe seek, you know, support and whatever that looks like for you. But, how do you then turn that back into a new normal for you so that you could have the energy to take something else on?
0: I was lucky because when i when I started getting healthy and I was going to Pilates three times a week and I was eating healthy and I was cooking at home, I didn't have the pressures of going to work. And that lasted a pretty long time when I decided to go back to work, and I decided to open a restaurant, which I didn't even know at the time if that's what I wanted to do. i I, had a big part of me that was sort of hoping for this crazy epiphany to fall in my lap of like, you're going to go do something else. And that never happened, which is great that it didn't happen. Um, But I think what did happen was I realized if I'm going to do this profession and if I'm going to open a restaurant, these five to 10 things are non-negotiables. And I have to continue
2: this in my life if I'm going to do this as you were thinking about, you know, if I'm going to do something else again, open another restaurant, you are a manager. How do you as a manager and think about taking that on, not only take care of yourself, but seek to think about how to prevent burnout for those around you? That's hard. And that's a
0: big topic and a topic that Sean, my partner and I speak about all the time and have developed a lot of programs and we have something called Burn that is constantly in development of providing exercise options for our staff and financial wellness education for our staff and wellness in general and just having access to hotlines or things like that. I think part of it is setting an example. My staff knows that I go to sleep early and I don't party and it's not because I talk about it. I just live a a healthy life and I think they see that and we try to encourage that in our team. I do think that there is a shift just in general to healthier living than when I was in my 20s and a cook and I think there's a shift in the industry also for that. Um, And we just really try to encourage people and listen to people and talk to people and get to know our team on a level where they feel comfortable coming to us so we can help them solve problems so that we don't result in in burnout. And that can be as simple as changing someone's schedule. That can be as simple as someone saying, listen, I've been on the morning shift for six months now. I've told you I'm not a morning person. I get why you needed me to do it. And And so I recently changed that person back to night times, and I think it's going to be healthier for her and for the, the business. So I think you have to be open to listening to your team, too, and being willing within reason to saying, okay, we really value this person. They've worked really hard for us. They've done what we asked them to do. Now let's make it so that they're more comfortable.
2: Danielle and I always talk about how comfort is key and we refuse to wear anything that doesn't remind us of a blanket at all times. And one of the things that you always have to think about when you travel is what bra is going to be the most comfortable on this very long flight? Don't lie, I know you're thinking about this too. Guess what? We found the answer. It is third love. Third love bras are amazing. They have no tags which I hate anything itchy. I hate tags. They are totally made for your comfort. They have no slip straps. They have total size inclusivity, over 80 bra sizes. You will definitely find one that fits you. They also, and this is my favorite part about them, believe in giving back. They donate all of their gently used bras to women in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. That means you. Right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your very first order. All you have to do is go to thirdlovecom now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off. That is thirdlove.com/skim for 15% off today. Happy traveling. Partnerships. Oh We have talked a lot on this show about having a co-founder, finding a partner, knowing when somebody is the right partner for you and not force-fitting it. You ended up bringing in a partner named Sean who was not a likely partner for you. He had (laughs) no prior hospitality experience, was more familiar being on a trading floor than in a restaurant. (laughs) He was your neighbor he asked you to go into business many times for many months. What made you know like this is somebody I should partner with?
0: You know, it's so funny because when I when I left Avoche, I was getting phone calls for jobs and partnerships and basically getting most of the meetings that I wanted. And I was really fortunate in that way. And some of those things came to fruition in terms of a deal almost happening. Some of those didn't come to fruition and were really disappointing for me. And Sean was sort of there listening and asking a lot of questions. If you know Sean, you know he's very inquisitive. And he would just ask really honest, really direct questions. And And he's also very thoughtful. So he started thinking and he was like, that deal sounds awful. Why would you sign a deal like that? And he wasn't the only person. My lawyer was like, you can't sign that deal. And I, at the time that Sean and I decided to partner, I was sort of in a state where I was getting, um, I don't want to say desperate, but I was definitely in a place where I needed to go back to work. I had set aside a certain amount of money. I had said I wouldn't work for a year. I knew I could do that but that year was starting to come to a close and I didn't have anything and I didn't want to go get a job. I wanted to find the answer. And I think we had gotten to know each other well because I wasn't working and he was my neighbor and we had the opportunity to spend more time together. And I think that over many conversations after he asked me and after I said no, I realized that what was really important was sharing sort of these business values and family values. And it didn't matter that he didn't know how to carry a glass properly through the dining room. Um, and that having a business partner who had a very different skill set than me and who was going to help me do the things that I didn't want to do. I didn't want to raise money. I've tried to do it before, and it wasn't a fun experience for me. And and I think it's great to kind of know what you're good at. And not that I couldn't go raise money. Today, if I wanted to go raise money, I could do it. It's not what I take pleasure in, and it's not a comfortable place for me. And it wasn't just about raising money. It was just about having someone that I also wanted to be in a room with and to spend time with and to go on this journey together. And I think that just became evident through a lot, a lot of conversation that he was the right person and that it was okay to take this risk and that, you know, there might be a a learning curve along the way that would make certain things more difficult, but that ultimately he was the right person.
1: You alluded to your partnership being based off of some shared business and family values. What are those? It starts with just wanting to
0: take care of people um, and wanting to form a company. And we talk about this all the time, form a company that we would wanna work in. And so if we were employees and we were going to apply to a job within one of the restaurants at Grove House, would we wanna work for this company? It's just about creating an environment that's a happy place to work, that has a lot of trust in it, that it's investing in people and having that investment in people and just always trying to make things better and do things better to achieve common goals. And the, the common goal is to really make people happy within our restaurants who are dining there and with people who are working there. The family values and I think business values kind of tie in together and watching him bring his family to the restaurant, for instance, his sons are my godsons. And um, I love that. yeah, and they're part of the restaurant. So it kind of becomes this more convivial place and it's not just about business all day, every day. And we have these you know, three kids running around like maniacs and it changes things a
2: little. After you opened Lilia, you were also then planning Missy, um, the second restaurant. And well, Sean was planning something after like two weeks. <laughs> I was not. Partnerships have a balance. Yes, yes. And you were given a curveball, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. You spend so much energy to protect your health in taking on a new venture, how emotionally did you figure out how to prioritize your health and yourself while also you now are beholden to employees and a partner? Well, you know,
0: it's funny that you bring up the point about protecting my health because I remember sitting in the in the breast surgeon's office, who's the first doctor you go to after you get diagnosed, which I never knew. Um, and... I remember there's a pamphlet that says like things to do to avoid breast cancer. And it was all the things that I had been doing strongly for the past couple of years. And I was like, how is this possible? So first of all, you never know why you get breast cancer and how you get it. And I'm not a believer that you shouldn't continue trying to be healthy because you get diagnosed. If anything, it's probably more motivating to be healthy. But I think it's interesting because I was sort of getting to the point when I got diagnosed of starting a little bit to fall back into old habits, the working longer hours than I needed to, the kind of not eating as well. I was due for an adjustment and getting diagnosed with cancer made me adjust. I mean, I had no option. So the good news is that I was never particularly sick when I had cancer. I, it was caught very, very early. I got surgery within two weeks of getting diagnosed. And then you go through a healing period. And then I had radiation for almost seven weeks. um, And I never had to have chemo. And so the the worst part of my treatment and going through that was really the radiation, which just makes you very fatigued, um, which forced me to take myself off the schedule and stop expediting. And honestly, in this weird expediting, you know, is standing at the pass every night, looking at every dish that goes out, calling out every ticket and really being in it. And I was doing that for the past three years. I had been doing it five nights a week and while planning for another restaurant, and at some point I knew I was going to have to take myself out of that role, and I couldn't be at Lilia every night doing that. And again, this sort of forced me to do it, but it was better for everyone. It gave other people the opportunity to step up. It gave me the opportunity to focus on other things and also just to be healthy, and I'm really lucky. Sean is an extremely supportive partner and was helpful during that period. My team was amazing. Um, We were very open with the team. You know, I think for me, it was really important as someone who was working there every day. I wasn't this absentee chef owner. I was there every day and I had already seen myself as I was getting diagnosed and getting biopsies and doing all the stuff. I was disappearing a lot to go to doctor's appointments and I was there a little bit less. I recognize that, and I'm like, this team is around me every day. They they know something's up, and I I didn't want to not share that, and I didn't want to be absentee without them knowing why. Um, and they were really supportive, and they stepped up, and it was really challenging. I got diagnosed in July. I had a chef who started within two months before that, the the head chef, and it was a bummer because I planned on being able to stand next to him every day, all day, to get him comfortable and trained, and I couldn't do that. That was probably one of the more difficult things for me. I think it's a great lesson in in learning how to rely on other people and and give up some of your normalcy. And if you're and and that helped me get through it, I just had to trust that the restaurants were going to be okay and that at that time the restaurant wasn't going to fall apart. Um and I tried to be there as much as I could. I mean, I would go to service and I would sit on a stool because I was tired and then I'd realize that it wasn't like the greatest look for me or the restaurant. And then I'd go home and I'd go to sleep and I'd kind of
1: like do do what I could. I want to talk about a different health issue in the hospitality industry. We're obviously in a golden age of food. At least I think we are because I eat a lot and it's good. <laughs> um, but the hospitality industry is a tough place to To work for a lot of different reasons. The turnover rate is higher than 70%. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the long hours and burnout. um, And a national survey on drug use and health found that the hospitality industry has the highest rate of substance abuse. What do you think restaurant owners and the industry needs to think about to create a better environment to change for instance, we, for one, have
0: always had a zero tolerance drinking policy. And so when I was growing up in this industry, you'd be cleaning up and you'd be drinking beers while you're cleaning up. And that that was my normal when I was 25 years old cooking. It wasn't really until I was at Spiagia where I worked with a good friend, now good friend, and he was the GM and he came in and we'd be drinking Negronis at the end of the night. And he'd be like, what are you guys doing? And I'd say, like, we're having our shift drink. And he'd be like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen anymore. And so ever since then, I really believed in that. And I saw it and I understood it. Um, So one, that's one thing that's a very simple thing to do is just... Don't allow shift drinks and don't allow drinking. We're really lucky. Our team loves to dine in the restaurants when when they're on their days off. They love to bring their families in. It's because really, it's really good. <laughs> it's really cool though that they want to do that. I don't feel like I ever wanted to go to my restaurant my day off, and they're doing it all the time. So they're obviously allowed to drink when they're dining with us. But I think we set a responsible tone. We don't stand around and drink in the restaurant. Hard of this idea of like creating exercise programs in the morning is to say, hey, we want you to come exercise in the morning, so hopefully they don't go out till four in the morning at night. It's, it's again going back to sort of setting that example, talking about fitness a lot. You really can't control what people do out, outside of your workplace, but you can certainly create a workplace inside where that is
1: not a celebrated thing. Before we go on to the last section, our lightning round, how has your definition of success changed over time?
0: I mean, success is such a big topic. And I think my definition of success before was opening a restaurant in Manhattan and being a successful chef. And that was it. And being at the top of that chef game. And that has shifted so much. And I think the definition of success is having a healthy company, having a team, that really loves working for us. And for me, really being able to mentor people and get them to the next level and see people grow within our company. Obviously, you want a healthy company financially, and the accolades are amazing, and they are validating, and I would never not want them. But it's not why I do it anymore. It's really about all this other stuff.
2: All right, lightning round. It's our favorite segment. We're going to give Always you- Always the hardest. It's not. you. Just, it's mind it's over matter. Quick, uh, Rapid fire. You have to answer as quickly as possible. All right. First job.
0: Ever? hmm Oh, I was a salesperson at a place called The Wave, which sold objects from like artisans, jewelry, art, really cool bowls, design stuff. Worst job. Ooh. My worst job ever? Yes. I would say that hotel that I yeah. that I worked in. Got it. <laughs> First phone call you make when you get good news. My mom. What about bad news? My mom.
1: Favorite pasta dish? Ever to eat? Yeah.
0: Oh, man. I mean, that's not fair, guys. Okay, what's
1: in your time? I'll tell you I yeah. made it the
0: other night. It's so nostalgic for me. And it's it's going in the cookbook. It's really simple ricotta ravioli mm. with red sauce. I'm that is so like hungry. what I grew up on. When I made it the other night to test it for the book, I just was like <laughs> in this happy place back in Connecticut. What is your... I was going to
1: ask you what's your shameless plug, but I'm just going to do it, which My is I'm really book? excited for this book.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a shameless plug that's like two years yeah. from now. So
2: I... What is your comfort food if you're just having a bad day and you're a, I, do you make it or do you just get it? No, nah, Joe's.
0: Okay. Slice of Joe's. I love Joe's. Yeah. I
2: have like a love affair with Joe's. Oh, that makes me happy. Slice of Joe's. What's the last thing you streamed to watch?
0: Oh my God, what's the name of it? I so bad. What's it
2: about? We'll help you. What out. platform is it on? Apple TV. Morning show?
0: Yes. See? Been watching helps you. the morning show. Yeah. Thank it's you good. so much.
2: Yeah. You're welcome. What is your biggest pet peeve?
0: Oh, there's so many. They used to keep a list of them in the kitchen, <laughs> like literally at a voce. They would have, they had them all. Um, my biggest pet peeve—I'll just give you a cooking one—is yeah. giant chunks of cooked carrots in things.
2: Who have you not cooked for that you want to?
0: Massimo Bottura. Who is that? Uh, Massimo Botura has a restaurant in uh, Modena in oh, Italy. Oh, I want to go called there. Did Osteria Francescana. Yes, ear.
1: I have tried to, I've spent many a night refreshing and then seeing if I get a reservation to plan a trip. Oh, I love that. I haven't gotten one yet. Um, I would love to cook for Massimo Batora.
2: Okay, I'd like to come to the dinner. Missy, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Congratulations on everything. Thank you,
1: thank you guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join
2: us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and information you need to start your day.
1: Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.